Hello and welcome to Empire Sports Talk. I am your host, Roman Gennaro, and I am a bit under the weather today, so if you're listening on Spotify or any of the other audio mediums, I apologize in advance for me struggling to breathe. I will try to edit as much of that out as humanly possible, but the show must go on, so let's get started. First and foremost, the MLB trade deadline has come and gone, and I could sit here and talk about all the trades that have happened, and we'll probably touch on some of them, but I want to talk about some of the storylines and someone who did not move. Um, first off, someone who did. Max Scherzer was traded to the Texas Rangers from the New York Mets. That that was no big surprise, considering that the Mets would be sellers because they are in the cellar this season. The surprise came when... What what Max did wasn't necessarily a surprise because I'm sure this happens a lot, especially with veteran players. But it's a surprise that we ne- we know about it because Max basically went into the Mets front office and he asked him what was up, and they gave him an answer, and then he told the media. Max Scherzer walked into the Mets, and and this was his quote given to the Athletic. He said, "I talked to Billy." I was like, okay, are we reloading for 2024? He goes, no, we're not. Basically, our vision now is for 2025, 2026. 2025 at the earliest, more like 26. We're going to be making trades around that, Max said. I was like, so the team is going to be pursuing free agents. So the team is not going to be pursuing free agents this offseason to assemble a team that can compete for a World Series next year? He said, no. We're not going to be signing this the upper echelon guys. We're going to be on the smaller deals within free agency. What 24 is now looking to be more of a kind of tra- transitionary year. So Max went in and had this conversation with the Mets front office. The Mets front office were, ve- were very honest. But then Max told all of us, as I said, I'm sure, I'm sure this is something that happens more than we know. The surprise is that Max would share that information, given how bad the Mets season is going. And now Max is in Texas, along with fellow all-star pitcher Justin Verlander, who around that same time, right at the deadline, was dealt to the Houston Astros, a team that he had previously won a World Series with. What I think the Mets need to do, because clearly this season has been... A disaster. Nothing short of it. Nothing's working on the field. The team is kind of falling apart internally. Players like Max are speaking out about how bad things have gotten. Um, clearly, Buck, Buck Showalter will be done after the year. And and this statement proves that, that they're not trying to win this year, and they're probably not going to win next year. So what I would say would happen was you've traded Justin Verlander. You've traded Max Scherzer. Now what you need to do is just tear the whole thing down. Trade Pete Alonzo. Trade Jeff McNeil. Trade Brendan Nimmo. And don't waste the primes of these guys who, and I say this carefully, probably don't want to stick around for that. Maybe they do. Freddie Freeman was a guy who wanted to stay in Atlanta during the rebuild because he wanted to be there on the back end. No one in New York has has said that. 
Now, you could argue that Brandon Nimmo basically said it when he signed a free agent deal, which I believe was worth for seven years with the Mets. But also, going into this year, with how vocal Steve Cohen has been about spending spending all the money he needs to to build a winning team and how good that team looked on paper, Brandon Nimmo wasn't signing up for what we're seeing on the field. Brandon Nimmo was signing up for what the Braves are doing, what the Rangers are doing, what the Astros are doing, what the Rays started doing before they've they've since fallen off a bit. They've been basically a 500 team since starting 21 and 9. But that's what Brandon Nimmo was signing up for long term, not an absolute disaster. And no, they're not in dead last. That's Washington. But I think with the expectations Washington had versus the expectations that New York had, Washington's thrilled with where they are. They're on the way up. New York is a dumpster fire. And so I think it was very interesting to see a big-name guy like Max Scherzer be very candid about a conversation he had with a major franchise, a major New York franchise. And they said, yeah, we're not, we're probably not winning for another two years. So they, so then in that case, don't waste Pete Alonso. Don't waste Brandon Nimmo, Jeff McNeil. The guys that are in their primes, don't waste Francisco Lindor. Trade him. If, if it's truly transition, if it's truly rebuild, do it. That's, that's what a rebuild is, 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 shipping off the guys that could bring you the most compensation and and capitalizing on that the reason freddie freeman was not part of the of the rebuild sell off was cuz he was young enough to still to still be he wasn't in his prime yet and he said he wanted to be part of it so they were able to hold on to the young guy who then became the cornerstone of that rebuild and ultimately won the championship in 2021. So so the Mets need to tear it down. They've admitted, they didn't admit publicly, Max did, but they've admitted to their star pitcher that it wasn't working and that they weren't going, going for broke either this year or the next year. Tear it down. Pete Alonso could get a lot on the market. Brandon Nimmo, not as much, mostly because who would absorb the contract he just signed. Jeff McNeil, great utility guy, super underrated guy. I think those are three guys that are going to get you huge returns. Francisco Lindor, again, it's about the contract. It's about how he plays. His his play's been up and down since he's been with New York. Um, but those are four guys that could give you get you significant returns. If you're serious about this being a full rebuild, then make it a full rebuild. The other thing, the Mets didn't do much. They they didn't they obviously didn't buy at the trade deadline. They sold at the trade deadline. The other New York team, the Yankees, did nothing, which was a bit more of a head scratcher than the Mets being sellers because we all saw that coming. Because the Yankees are in a division where all five teams are above five hundred. Obviously, the Orioles are the best team in that division, one of the best teams in baseball, but you also have the Rays, the Blue Jays, who are who are more than t- all more than 10 games above 500, and you have the Red Sox and Yankees who are straddling 500 but they're above 500. The Yankees 
are still better than the AL Central leading Minnesota Twins. So the AL wild card is wide open. Getting to the wild card and maybe facing Minnesota that you could that's an I don't want to say that's an easy win. That's disrespectful, but that would be better than playing Texas or Tampa or Baltimore. It's an I'll say and it's it's an accessible victory. So the fact that a team like the Yankees who have a bunch of assets, who have a bunch of great players, and and ju- just need one one run, one good week to get the ball rolling, didn't go out there and make a splash. They they were linked to Cody Bellinger for a while, but the Cubs have have since come to life and are are making a playoff push of their own. So the Cubs ended up not being sellers. Uh, but the fact that the Yankees couldn't close a single a single notable deal when the bottom part of the AL playoff picture is wide open, it it didn't make sense to me. Other trade deadline news: We know that the Angels made moves. They went and got uh, Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez. They went and got Randall Grichik and C.J. Crone. And Randall Grichik took to his new old team. Very, very quickly. Uh, Randall Gritchick was drafted by the Angels way back in the day um, and has returned and, and got off to a hot start. He he played very well for the team against the Braves. And yet, the Angels have not won since the trade deadline. I believe they are 0-5 or 0-6 since the trade deadline. And I knew if... If if you've listened to any of our social media content or you listened to last week's episode, I've said it a hundred times that the Angels would be making a mistake to not trade Otani and to go for it for one year when their ceiling was a wild card berth. I didn't think I'd be proven right so fast. Um, since that decision to keep Otani, they have not won. Um, they are now seven games back in the American League wildcard, and as I said, that wildcard race is going to be tough because you have essentially the entire AL East, who are all above 500. You have Seattle, who's playing a lot better right now, just swept the Angels on a four-game series, so there you go. It's going to be extremely hard for a team like the Angels, who have struggled to score runs consistently all year, to leapfrog the Rays, the Blue Jays, Seattle. It, that's going to be so hard. They're not going to make the playoffs. I've said this for not just last week. I've said this for a few weeks now. If you go back in my Twitter, I've said that the it, the, the road to October was going to be really tough for the Angels before they made the trades for Giolito and Lopez and Grichik and Crone. This is going to go down as one of the worst decisions in sports history to keep Shohei Otani. I just didn't think I'd be proven correctly so fast. But here we are. The Angels are teetering at 500, seven games back of a very, very tough path to the AL wildcard. We're going to venture into some territory that we don't often talk about on this show, but something very interesting happened in the WNBA this week as Diana Taurasi, in her 19th year in the WNBA, became the first player in the WNBA, in WNBA history, to eclipse 10,000 points. Now, if you follow the NBA, you're like, well, that number's kind of low. Well, that's because 
The WNBA only plays about 35 games, so that it's it's almost a third of the length of a of an NBA season. But we're not here to compare. The Diana Taurasi was already the NBA leading scorer. Now she's the only one. She stands alone at the 10,000 point plateau. And the funny thing to me was that I heard a narrative. I can't remember where I saw it, but I had to laugh. Somebody asked the question, is Diana Taurasi the, the goat of the WNBA? Of course she is. Like, so, okay, so she's the all-time leading scorer, but not just that. She's got the 10,000. She's the all-time leading scorer, but she's 2,500 points over the next person, and that's Tina Thompson. And she's a three-time WNBA championship. Only six players have more, and it's only one more. If she, if she were to win one more with the Phoenix Mercury, she'd be tied for the most championships of all time. She's won two two finals MVPs. She's got she's got the 2009 WNBA MVP. She's a 10-time All-Star. She's 10-time WNBA first team, four-time WNBA second team, five-time scoring champ, 2014 WNBA assist leader, and 2004 rookie of the year. Oh, and by the way, those are just her WNBA stats. She has other stats since she turned pro. She's a six-time EuroLeague champ. She's a seven-time Russian National League champ. She's a three-time Russian Cup winner, three-time Russian League Player of the Year, 2011 Turkish National League champion, 2012 Turkish Cup winner. Because many many WNBA players play for overseas teams in the offseason. So that so so that's her. That's her. Just her over the overseas resume. Add that to her WNBA resume. Only one player has more All-Star appearances with Sue at, and it's Sue Bird at 13. And Sue Bird does have is one of the six that has four championships. So you could argue the only other argument to me for a WNBA GOAT is Sue Bird because of because of those those four championships, but she's seventh in scoring, which is 3,200 behind Diana Taurasi. And Diana Taurasi does have that assist title from 2014, proving that she's not just a scorer. So, in, and, and you go back to college, where she was teammates with Sue Bird, and she won three national championships. There is no argument here. The only person with 10,000. She's 2,500 and counting over the next closest person in career points. Diana Taurasi is obviously the greatest of all time in women's basketball. And she has been for a while. Because I think she broke the scoring record a couple of years ago. So she has been for a while. So the fact that even after this 10,000 plateau, people are like, is she the greatest of all time? Yeah. Like, we asked the question, is LeBron the greatest of all time? Is Michael Jordan the greatest of all time? Because there is a debate to be had. There's a discussion to be had. One look at this resume. One look at the only name on the list of 10,000 points. And it's clear there is no discussion to be had. 
it's Diana Taurasi. Diana Taurasi could go on the list of the greatest winners of all time in sports. She'd go on a list with Bill Russell, with Tiger Woods, with Jack Nicholas, with Venus and Serena Williams, with Tom Brady, as one of the greatest winners in professional sports ever. So there's no, there's no conversation. Diana Taurasi is the greatest of all time. I want to issue a congratulations to her for eclipsing the 10,000 point mark, the first to do so. Next, I want to shift to another topic that we don't often discuss on this show because I admittedly don't know as much about it as I'd like, although I'm always willing to learn. The NHL. And specifically what I want to talk about in the NHL is this year, the, the, the NHL and the NBA have often run parallel. Their seasons are the same length. They start and end at the same time. Their championships are at the same time. Their drafts are at the same time. So while the world was focused on the NBA draft and the utter supernova that was the prospect of Victor Wimpenyama. What slipped under the radar for many was the fact that hockey had seen a similar player be drafted at the same time. Connor Bedard is seen as one of the greatest prospects the NHL has ever had. Right up there with Connor McDavid, who has now won multiple MVPs, multiple multiple All-Stars. He's he, he's living up to that moniker. Sidney Crosby, who's one of the greatest players that we've seen. But now here comes Connor Bedard. The Blackhawks were awarded the first pick and he's going to be in Chicago. What I like most about Connor Bedard is not how good of a player he is. And and he really really is. It is it's his humility. And humility has seemed to come up a lot as a topic for me this week. So, so this is this is fitting. Um, Connor Bedard's humility is something to marvel at. He's 18, 19 years old, drafted first overall in the NHL draft, seen as one of the best prospects of all time, and Chicago's first regular season game is against the Pittsburgh Penguins, and Connor Bedard's idol is Sidney Crosby. So Connor Bedard had this to say on Chicago's first game being against the Penguins. He said, if I'm able to make the squad come October, Sidney Crosby is my idol ever since I can remember. That'd be unbelievable. Let's reread the first half of that quote. If I'm able to make the squad. If. Connor Bedard is taking nothing for granted. And this is not the first time he has said that. When he was first drafted, on draft night, in his introductory press conference, every time he's had the chance, he said, if I make the team. If I make the team. The best prospect we've seen possibly ever in the National Hockey League is concerned about being cut. Professional sports don't have that kind of humility anymore. You get guys who know they're good. And so sometimes they don't play as hard. And oftentimes, 
The sport will wash them out. The sport will humble them. You see that more often in football and baseball where there's more players on a team than you do in, in basketball. But but it's not but basketball is not is not immune to it either. Um baseball baseball will humble will humble you really fast. Um as Ted Williams once said, he said, My my profession is the only one where you can fail seven out of ten times and be considered really good at your job. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of, of, of his quote. Baseball humbles you really quick. Football humbles you really quick. One one good hit, and that's your welcome to the NFL moment. Everybody has it. Um, everybody has a welcome to the NBA moment. Go go listen to retired players talk about theirs. Professional sports are humbling, so it helps to, to walk into it that way. And what we're seeing from Connor Bedard saying, if I make the team, if I'm able to put in enough work, if what I give is good enough, I'll be ready to play. That is a kid, a kid who says, I'm going to show up day one and work so hard. And he doesn't have to say it directly. This is how he says it. If I'm able to make the team, it'll be awesome. His humility tells you that he will probably outwork anyone else in that locker room. Probably outwork anybody else on that ice. And I, for one, am so looking forward to seeing what that kid brings to the city of Chicago. That is a proud hockey town. It's a proud sports town. You know, we talked a little bit about Chicago last week. Um, Cubs shortstop Dansby Swanson has talked about how professional sports are a little bit bigger in Chicago than in in his home state and his former um, stop of uh, of Georgia, of Atlanta. And in a way, he's right. Atlanta loves the Bulldogs and it loves the Braves, but there's not as much fanfare for the Hawks, for the former NHL team, the Thrashers, which tells you the point. The point. But in Chicago, every sports franchise is is loved. And while for a while the Bulls were not as much a part of that, this guy changed that. So I like I like seeing another young guy just just hungry and ready to go and humble coming into a, a city that will embrace him so warmly. So I love seeing this from Conor Bedard. Like I said, this is not the only time he said this since being drafted. He said it on two or three other occasions. If I make the team, if I, if I get a spot on the roster, one of the best prospects we've ever seen drafted round one, pick number one. If I make the roster, I love it. The situation in Indianapolis with the Indianapolis Colts is getting worse. Jonathan Taylor requested a trade after the Colts didn't express an interest in extend in giving him a contract extension right now. I said on last week's podcast, excuse me, I said on last week's podcast that I thought maybe Jonathan Taylor didn't have a good grip on what the running back landscape was when he asked for that trade because that Dalvin Cook still doesn't have place to play. Ezekiel Elliott still doesn't have a place to play. Saquon Barkley took $900,000 more than the franchise tag he refused, which is confusing. 
So I thought I thought maybe the trade request from Jonathan Taylor was in poor taste a little bit. And I still think it was a, it was a weird timing. But then the Colts owner, Jim Ursay, spoke up. And I do believe that now that Dan Snyder has sold the Washington Commanders, that Jim Ursay is the least liked owner in the NFL. That's just my opinion, but I I probably won't find many that disagree. And he said multiple things. He he said, we're not extending Jonathan Taylor, and we're not trading him. We're not trading him now. We're not trading him in October. Okay. Probably didn't need to be said, but okay. You're, you're making your, your thoughts clear. Then they put him on the basically the physically unable to perform list, but there's a special version of that list, and I don't, forgive me for not knowing the name of it off the top of my head, I did, and I lost it. They put him on the list because of a back injury. Air quotes. Back injury. That Jonathan Taylor has stated he does not have. And the Colts claim that Jonathan Taylor sustained that back injury away from the team. Meaning that if they wanted to, they could put him on the list, the injured list, that would be and because the injury happened away from the from the team, supposedly, Jonathan Taylor wouldn't get paid for this season. He's under contract, but the Colts could choose to not pay him for the season. That's not it. Then Jim Ursay triples down, doubles down on his double down, and he says, If I die tomorrow and Jonathan Taylor is out of this league. No one's going to care. The world will move on. No one will remember us, is basically what he said. The world will move on. Yes, that's how time works. But it's completely disrespectful to imply. Because what this says to me is like, yeah, Jonathan Taylor's replaceable. But what it says to me is, Jonathan Taylor's not that good. Why are we talking about it? That's the tone with which Jim Irsay is talking about Jonathan Taylor, a player who's under contract for his team, a player who, if Jim Irsay is lucky, could still decide to play. So I don't think Jim Irsay should be bad-mouthing a player on his roster who he says he's not going to trade because you want Jonathan Taylor out there. To imply that he's nothing special is ridiculous. Sure, he had a bit of a down year last year. He had several injuries he was dealing with, whatever. But two years ago, he is the reason your team was one game from the playoffs. And let me have a side note here and dispel. There's been a lot of disrespect for the Indianapolis Colts, the football team, not this situation, the football team over the last several years because their quarterback situation was so bad last year. And everybody wanted to put the blame on Carson Wentz the year before. And that was dumb. Carson Wentz did exactly what he was supposed to do two years ago. Hand the ball to Jonathan Taylor and not make too many mistakes. And that's exactly what he did. If they had won in Week 18 against Jacksonville, they would have made the playoffs. And all of that Carson Wentz slander would have been out the door. I'm not here to defend Carson Wentz as a quarterback. It didn't work out in Washington. He doesn't have a team right now. I'm not here to defend him. But what I am saying is that 
there's so much slander for this team for the last several years that that I'm just not here for. The, that Colts roster was good. Carson Wentz did exactly what he was supposed to. He was supposed to he was there to hand the ball to Jonathan Taylor, and that's what he did. I was at that Week 18 game against Jacksonville. No one could get anything going. Not even Jonathan Taylor. The Jags defense was swarming. It was unbelievable. It was flashes of what we saw this the second half of this year when they made that run to get into the playoffs to beat the Chargers to push the to push the Chiefs to the uh, to the edge. Um, and then last year, if you take out the quarterback play, the defense was good. Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce are one of the are probably one of the most underrated wide receiver tandems in football. Michael Pittman is an ascending star. And I know if you don't watch the Colts, you might not even know who Alec Pierce is. But Alec Pierce is able to make the tough catches look easy. And the impossible throws look catchable. If you haven't seen him, tune in. Alec Pierce and Michael Pittman are two of the be- like one of the best one of the most underrated tandems in the NFL. The the defense kept them in a lot of games that the uh, that that the quarterback play should have kept them out of. Their schedule this year is kind of favorable even though the AFC is going to be a gauntlet. Their schedule is relatively favorable and as you will see I will post my my standings my predictions uh, here pretty soon. As you will see, you'd be surprised at where I have them. It's a good roster, but people want to make fun of it. Wait and see. That being said, Colts fans, Colts teammates, Colts ownership front office, hope that Jonathan Taylor decides to play this year. He is under contract. He probably wants to get paid. So they're hoping that he he decides to play. By Jim Irsay saying, if he's out of the league tomorrow, if I die tomorrow, no one's going to remember us and the world's going to move on. That's not exactly saying, I know we have our differences, but we want you on the field for us. And they did just sign veteran veteran running back Kenyon Drake, who I think could do a serviceable job, but he's not Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan Taylor is one of the best running backs in this league. So don't don't go spitting fire at, at, at your running back when you're going to need him. You're going to need every yard he can give you. So we'll see how that shakes out. The, the other massive story in sports over the last week or so is the fact that there have been a ton of conference realignments with the Pac-12, with what was formerly known as the Pac-12, being left with just four teams, with every other team jumping ship being announced that Oregon and Washington, I believe, were going to the Big 12. Um, And uh, obviously the Big 12 has lost a bunch of teams as well, with Oklahoma and Texas very publicly going to the SEC. And it's very, very weird to think about some of that. You know, those teams have been in those conferences as long as I can remember. But Missouri head football coach, Eli Drinkwitz brought up a good point 
when he said, and this is a quote from him, he said, did we count the cost of the student athletes involved in this decision? We're, we're talking about a football decision, but what about softball and baseball who have to travel, who have to travel cross country? Do, do we know what the number one symptom or cause of mental health is? The lack of, the lack of rest and sleep traveling in, tra- traveling in those baseball and softball games. They travel commercial. They get done playing at four. They go to the airport. They got to come back. It's it's three or four in the morning. They got to go to class. I mean, did we ask any of them? I don't worry at all about the game. The the, the game is going to be strong. F- football is going to be fine. But did we consider the people that we are entrusted with? Did we consider the student athlete? And there's a lot to unpack there. Because for football, it's not a big as big a deal. And and he didn't get into the actual schedule part of it. So let me kind of kind of dig into that because I know that's what he's saying. For football, it's not that big a deal. Football games are played once a week. And I heard somebody this morning talk about how the college game is becoming the pro game and that like, you know, they travel everywhere. It's it's no big deal. But talk, going back to college, football games are once a week. Plenty of time to rest. To get back home, if, if if you fly on planes, great. But baseball, softball, even basketball, track and field play multiple times a week. Baseball plays usually one or two weeknight games and a, and an entire series on a weekend. And softball, the same thing. So if, let's say, and, and, and I'll get into this in a minute as well. Let's say, you know, Oklahoma is in the the SEC next year. And you know, the the baseball team has to go to a conference game or a conference series in Tuscaloosa as opposed to a conference series in Lubbock or in Stillwater, Oklahoma. That's a lot different. And at least the college that I went to, they didn't fly. They were on buses. They had to sleep and do homework on buses, on hours-long car rides. Now, we're, we're, we're talking bigger schools and bigger conferences. They have the money to deal with it. But Coach Drinkwitz is right. This was a football decision. This this didn't factor in the tennis teams, the golf teams, the baseball teams, even the basketball teams. But let's let's go back to football for a second. Because I mentioned that I would talk about the distance and the mileage. So even once a week, these are student athletes, they have classes. So once a week for football makes sense on a Saturday. They have classes to go to. And if you're an athlete, you can get excused from classes, but you still have to make up tests and quizzes and assignments. But you can get excused from your classes. But if you're not there for the class, then you have to have a classmate who oftentimes, for athletes or other athletes, fill you in on what you missed. So, Norman, Oklahoma, which is the site of the University of Oklahoma, we're, we're, we're going to use Oklahoma as an example, just for 
and not just for football, but for but for all sports to see how drastic a change this is that no one's talking about. Norman, Oklahoma, to Lubbock, which is where Texas Tech is, one of the former Big 12 rivals of, of Oklahoma, is 330 miles away, or about 5 hours and 20 minutes. So that's a that's a hefty bus ride. If if you fly, it's not too bad. But five hours and twenty minutes that's it's it's a good ways. That would be a conference game. That would be middle of the season. That would be if you're playing baseball. That would be a three game series, or softball. Now, let's take two of Oklahoma's new conference partners, and. I can't remember if they're going to align Oklahoma and Texas in the West or in the East. So I took one from each. So let's imagine a conference schedule where Oklahoma plays Alabama at Alabama. Or the other way around, because whichever one the visiting team is, they have to travel the same way, so it affects them. But let's say they have to go to Tuscaloosa for a, for a November night game in Tuscaloosa. Norman to Tuscaloosa is 720 miles, or 10 hours and 31 minutes. Compare that to Oklahoma traveling to Texas Tech. That is twice the distance. That is twice the time. That is twice the energy, twice the fatigue on the student-athlete. Now, let's take that a step further. Let's assume that Oklahoma gets lined up in the SEC East and has to go face Florida in Gainesville. Alabama and Florida are right next to each other state-wise, so maybe it's not that far away. Wrong. Norman to Gainesville, Florida, Norman, Oklahoma to Gainesville, Florida is almost 1,200 miles. It's 1,193 miles, or 17 hours and 24 minutes away. And that is by bus. Yes, some of these teams might use, it's by bus or car. Yes, some of these larger schools might use planes, but it's still a distance that these players have to sleep, eat, rest, do homework, study, any number of things that they could have had in their own beds, in their own dorm rooms, in their own homes, in their own apartments, with their friends, with their families, that they now can't have because conferences are realigning for money. It doesn't make sense for Oregon to play Ohio State. It doesn't make sense for Washington to play Michigan or Minnesota. We scratched our heads when Rutgers joined the Big Ten because they're from New Jersey, and so you, you have them going to Champaign, Illinois, and Columbus, Ohio. Didn't make a lot of sense. They If they, if they stayed in the Big East where you have UConn, Syracuse. There's a reason that these conferences were once aligned regionally. Because A, the allure of college football is regionality. Is the, the small town nature and the small town feel, the community feel of college football. That, and, and that's one reason why the conferences were what they were and have been what they have been. 
Yes, we've seen moves before. Yes, money was always involved. Money has always been involved. It is always going to be involved. But this is this is taking it too far because now you're having student athletes. Let's not forget that some of them are getting paid now, but they are still students traveling cross country midweek during the school year. This decision was not based on their well-being. It was based on the linings of the pockets of the adults that this travel doesn't impact. And that's what that that's what Missouri coach Eli Drinkwitz was talking about. Was that they didn't factor in the decision makers didn't factor in the people it would affect. And it would affect the football players, but he's talking about other athletes as well. It doesn't make sense for to expect a student athlete to go 17 hours to a conference opponent. It, do, it doesn't make sense. I think this continues to be the summer of weird basketball takes. We've heard from Carl Anthony Towns. We've heard stories from John Morant, Damian Lillard, James Harden. We've heard from all of them. But that doesn't mean we're done because Gilbert Arenas took his turn at the mic this week. Gilbert Arenas has always had interesting opinions. He's frequently spoken out on podcasts, and you know how I feel about NBA players and podcasts, but former NBA players can say whatever they want. I don't like current NBA players doing it, but former NBA players can say whatever they want. Gilbert Arenas this week, on when asked about people having Bill Russell as one of the 10 greatest basketball players ever, had this to say. When people have Bill Russell in their in their top ten, I gotta question their basketball knowledge. And he went on to make comments that we hear a lot when we talk about the greatness of Jerry West or Bob Cousy, or and players of that era, Wilt Chamberlain. He's playing against plumbers. He's playing against white guys. He's playing against this. The you know, the league had eight teams, so that's how he got eleven championships. Why do we live in an era now? where the only way to build up a case for someone is to begrudge or belittle someone else. We talk about LeBron's got four championships, but he lost six. You know, we talk about um, Peyton Manning was the, one of the greatest racing quarterbacks ever, but he only got the two Super Bowls. Okay? So why does Gilbert Arenas feel the need to come after Bill Russell when Bill Russell's not here to defend himself, first of all? Is it Bill Russell's fault that he came into the league at a time when there were only eight teams? No. Bill Russell went up against his given competition the same way that Gilbert did in his time. The same way that LeBron is. The same way that Steph is. The same way that Michael did. And he won with what he was given. That's all any athlete can be held accountable for. He won with what he was given. He is the greatest winner professional sports has ever seen or did we retire his number league-wide in the nba because there were only eight teams in the league because he was playing against plumbers and electricians and white guys and people that were a foot shorter did we hold that against him when we said he's one of the greatest winners and one of the greatest character humans that that sports has ever seen no so why do we have to sit here and say, if 
man, if he's in your top 10, I question your basketball knowledge. Who cares? A top 10, because there's no way to have a definitive list that is set in stone, fact, whatever. Every single person is going to have a different top 10 list. All of them. And some people would have wilt on it because of his sheer statistical dominance in the NBA records that he has. Some people are going to have Michael at the top because he was 6-0 in finals. Because he, because his career would have been so much more if he hadn't have lost those five years. Some people have LeBron up, up there because obviously it's him because he, you know, he is the all-time leading scorer and he's got four championships. And some people are going to have Kobe up there because Kobe was a winner. Kobe did it with the Lakers. Kobe, you know, there are so many reasons why any anyone and everyone could be on anyone's list. So for you to besmirch the late the late great Bill Russell's name, also while insulting anyone who holds him as a standard of winning, as they should, is unfair and unnecessary. To say the other strange thing that I heard this week was from was from Jeff, former All Star point guard Jeff Teague, who was talking about the James Harden and Dwayne Wade debate, and I didn't really know this was a debate. Uh, he said, and he had this to say: He said, "Rings don't matter to me. When I go to the park, I see a little kid playing like James Harden." I don't really see little kids playing it like D. Wade. And this was doubling down on a statement that he made that he would rank James Harden higher on his all-time list than Dwayne Wade. Which you could, and, I, and I'm not going to, based on what I said, I'm not going to think less of you if you have James Harden above Dwayne Wade. But I will say this, is to say rings don't matter to me. But to say rings don't matter to me, that's the point of why you play professional sports. Why why you compete is to win. Maybe when you look at all-time greatness, but what you're not talking about is greatness. What you're talking about is style. What you're talking about is flash. And nobody had more style. Nobody had more swagger. Nobody had more imitators than Allen Iverson. Does he have a championship? Does he have any rings? Is he in anyone's top five? He's in some top tens, but that that raises eyebrows to some. I wouldn't put him in the top ten. I wouldn't put him in the top 15. I'd put him in the top five most influential athletes of all time. But that doesn't mean he's better all time than Michael, LeBron, Kobe, Wilt, Bill Russell, Shaq, Kareem. People that took the competition in front of them and beat it. James Harden has never made it to an NBA Finals. James Harden is fun. But James Harden, like Carmelo Anthony, like to some extent Kevin Durant, that's a longer, that's a longer story, don't come for me, is a scorer and that's it. James Harden needs help. Carmelo Anthony needed help. And Carmelo Anthony also never won, which is why Carmelo Anthony isn't going to go above 
all time isn't going to go above the likes of Shaq, Hakeem Olajuwon, Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan. He's not. Because they're winners. So, and to compare that, Dwayne Wade, yes, he won two championships with LeBron James, Chris Bosh. But he won before that. As a third-year player, with his running mate being Shaquille O'Neal, who was past his prime. Not far past. He was still very, very, very good. I'm not coming for Shaq. But that Heat team was good. But Dwayne Wade was the leader of that team. Dwayne Wade won by himself-ish, depending on how much credit you want to put on Shaq there. James Harden hasn't done anything. He has an MVP. Congratulations. To say rings don't matter to me, then what does? Does it make you feel better to say that, considering that Jeff T's only ring came late in his career with the Milwaukee Bucks when he was a minor role player? Does that make Jeff Teague feel better? To say rings don't matter? Sure. Yeah, you, you, you go to a playground, you see players play like D. Wade. But one of the best names in streetball belonged to Rafer Alston for a long time. And he came into the league with the Magic and he helped them to the NBA Finals. I believe strongly that if Stan Van Gundy hadn't tried to force a, a newly healthy Jameer Nelson back into start the starting lineup for the Finals, when the Magic were clicking so well with Ray Frosten as the starting point guard, they would have beaten the Lakers in 2009. But people played like Ray for, like Ray for Alston is a guy from the playground. Playing on the playground is about flash. It's not about it's not about substance. It's not about winning. It's about who can look the coolest. And if you're doing step backs and crossovers like James Harden, you look pretty cool. But what looks cooler than crossovers and step backs? is lifting a trophy at the end of the year. So Jeff Teague is wrong. And I'm a big fan of Jeff Teague. I was a, I was a big fan of those Hawks teams that he led to the playoffs. I was a big fan of, of that group. But in this instance, Dwayne Wade over James Harden all time. I don't think either one of them are top 15. But that's just wrong. It's wrong. That's all the time I have for you. Thanks for putting up with me while I'm a little bit under the weather. Sorry again for any sniffles and, and anything you may hear. Um, please check us out on our socials and our YouTube channel, Empire Sports Pod, on, on all socials. Uh, we have a lot of content coming out, a lot of good stuff. Please, ch please check us out. Give us a follow. Give us comments. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. We have some new stuff coming. We have some interviews in our new space. You see a little bit of it here, but when we have interviews in here, you'll see, you'll see the rest. This has been Empire Sports Talk, my mom's favorite podcast. Today's a good day to go 1-0. I'll see you next time.